Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Welcome, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. You know, it's a beautiful Thursday to talk about co-ops, and it's the start of Women's History Month, and their theme for this year is Valiant Women of the Vote. And today we have Liz Bailey uh, on the line with us that's going to talk about Valiant Women uh, in the cooperative movement, which she is one of them. Uh, Good morning, Liz. Good morning, Vernon. How are you today? I'm terrific. Great, 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 great. Uh, Liz, how long have you been in this co-op world? Oh, boy. I guess it's been since uh, the early 2000s, so it's been about 15 years. But I've been in public policy world my whole career, so it kind of became a logical extension. Public policy and cooperatives. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's all about governance, one sort or another. With governance in the public policy world, it's you know getting things done through government programs and leadership there. And, and in co-ops, it's about governance and democratic ownership. So they really are very compatible, even though I have to admit I didn't ever aspire to cooperative development is where I would would spend a block of time, but it just it happened and it and it's you know gets in your blood and then then it becomes part of you as you know. <laughs> it does get in the blood once you get an understanding of it. And Liz, how it got into my blood was I started managing housing co-ops and I watched everyday people make very intelligent decisions and sometimes without a lot of formal education, but they they exercise that fifth principle of education information, knowledge, and so they got educated on how you run a business, and they make very intelligent decisions, and a lot a lot of women in this That's housing right. co-op world. That's right. Yeah, recently I was at a conference here in Washington of, of new and developing home care co-ops, and the room was full of men and women, but primarily women and young women, and what was so fascinating was to sit there and and realize that not only are they caregivers in the day-to-day world, but they were there to learn the governance piece, which was how to run a business and how to do it as a co-op. And it was it was just a serious discussion with these people learning about how to take ownership and, and responsible ownership of a business. And it was it was really gratifying because you realize they're going to be sustainable because they're they're figuring out how to make it work as a business. And what do you mean about sustainable? So you got these young people, this home care products is they go into homes and help mainly seniors but maybe disabled people. Sure. And normally they don't get paid much, and normally whoever's running the business makes the profit, and and they may live in the community, they may not, and that profit goes away from the community. And these people in the home care business, the ones that's right there on the front line, have a hard time making a living. So Well, and, and many of them will be hired by several different 
uh, agencies because none of them will hire them for enough hours for them to qualify for benefits. So they are then working long hours, uh, have no health insurance, no time off, no, you know, none of those kinds of benefits that a lot of us know accrue with, with full-time employment. And they then are strapped with, with hours of working, but they, they do it because, you know, one, it may be the only job that available, but also because they've, they're caregivers and they've, they've got big hearts, which is what, what uh, often the, the line with home care co-ops often is, you know, we, we may, we need to hire a manager and we need to learn the management part, but we don't need to learn that, that caring for people part. That's, that just kind of comes with the DNA. And if they are in a sustainable business, they then can set employment, set their salary rates for each other. They can set, um, they decide as a group what kind of training they may need when a, a, a employer in the, in the for-profit world may not care about training them because they, they don't want to invest in their long-term employment there. And then they, if they can afford it, then they figure out what benefits they can provide for each other. But it becomes a decision of the member owners of the business, and they make make decisions that will make that business sustainable. And it may take a long time when they're start. You know, any startup takes a long time, but but their their passion, along with learning what the the building blocks of a business are, is what's really going to make them sustainable. And we all know. And especially in the care providing world, the need is huge. We have to figure out how to do it in a way that that creates more of these sustainable kinds of opportunities. Well, I'm one of those baby boomers, and there's a lot of us in the market now. And we're we're going. If we don't need it now, we're going to need it in the near future. This home health care, or move right. to some housing facility. Uh, senior housing facility, and most of us want to be independent as long as we can. So mm-hmm. we want somebody to come in and help us. That's uh, right. So That's right. How can we afford it? And then how can we afford it such that they can live a decent life and have time for their families and time to make uh, what my mother called ends meet? Um, that's <laughs> not having to borrow from Peter to pay Paul, but how do you get enough in so you can feed themselves and send their kids to school and have insurance and housing and everything that they might need, health care. Mm-hmm. How do they Absolutely. do that? Yeah. Absolutely. And that's what you mean by sustainable. Both the business being sustainable over long term and the individuals can be sustainable. So is that what you mean? Absolutely. Yep. And and I think you see that in the, one of the early home care co-ops in rural Wisconsin, uh, Cooperative Care, they were in a competition about 20 years ago at the Kennedy School of Government where they had a, um, a solutions in government uh, a competition. And when they created that co-op, it was uh, the county, uh, a rural county, taking its caseload of care providers and saying, if you all will come together and form a co-op, we will give you that first tranche of of business and then you need to make it into an ongoing business and they came in second in that competition 20 years ago because the judges didn't think it was going to be sustainable and 20 years later they they're in a rural place where it's really you know anything rural seems to be harder but they are still a viable cooperative 
they have made a lot of decisions along the way that have have made them sustainable but they have grown as a group too through all of that to be some of the smartest you know business people in in those rural places because they they know what their business uh, needs and they know what the needs of the community are so it's it's um <laughs> apparently they can't go back and reapply to to that competition which i i said to one of them at one point that i thought they needed to go back and show them just how sustainable they were and apparently there's a statute of limitations of sorts that they can't go back in after after they've been in the competition once but but it's just one of those success stories of where where they have really defied the odds but they've done it in a place that that uh, you know they're providing services in a in a part of the state where there aren't even nursing home options if people uh wanted them because it's too rural for for many nursing homes to want to go in there so they applied for this they, competition a, right and they, the county they, did and this was back in like 2005 or something like that they, but I'm going to get that they came in second place. They would have come in first place if the people judging it thought that they were sustainable, that they would be there for right. the long haul. Right. They didn't think that they would be there for the long haul. And 10 years later, they were still in business. They had had rocky points like a lot of startup businesses do, but they were um they still have care providers. I think they have about 60 care providers that are part of, some are member owners, some are not, but they are still very much a viable business and um, defied the odds that the, the judges, at least, had decided were against them. So the the difficulty with the rural part of it is that one of them, like with rural electric co-ops, uh, telephones, is this distance between one in this case, one family and the next one, and then these hair, right. home health care providers have got to do this driving. Somehow they've got to get to these different spaces, and that takes up more time, more expenses, uh, and too often you can't pass on that additional expenses to the person you're providing. So how do you make this thing work and provide uh, efficient uh caring services yeah it's it's daunting i i would if i was judging it i would be guessing how do you make this work financially no. I, that would be my first question well one of, how you do it long term one of the the real challenges is the medicaid is is the source of funding for for a lot of their client base and the medicaid reimbursement rates are not at a level that can reimburse for for the expenses that may be associated with taking care of someone and so they'll limit the number of trips you can make in a in a week say to serve someone because of the mileage uh, that's allowed and all so that that you the trick is to really get a mixture of some of your Medicaid client base, but then to get some private pay and to maybe, uh, in some cases, they have they've succeeded in working with the Veterans Administration on on veteran clients in the area too, which have a different uh, formula, I believe, for for their reimbursement for services. So, the the solution is to try and and you know broaden your base as much as diversification in every in every part of our our economy is is part of the solution for for getting uh, sustainable businesses and home care is no different and it is it's definitely a challenge but it's 
you know, it is through, there are a number of home care co-ops now that are are growing around the country, and it's it's real gratifying to to see how many are there and how we could, you know, sometime in the foreseeable future, kind of make some some judgment that they've gotten to scale, that there are enough of them around the country with a lot of different ways that they've organized themselves that are there providing services and will be part of the um, the care providing uh, framework for the future. And there are women, mainly women in those who are are the um, the care providers. But there I will I will quickly add there are some some um, some great great examples of men who are are doing the care providing too. So it's it's not exclusively but it it's clearly a, a predominantly a, a female workforce. So going back to our theme for the month is going to vote. Do you have any sense when you're working with and I want to get to that uh, conference one year here. And I know I've been trying to get a, the last two years to that home care product. So I'd like to be in the room and listening to them and see what they're learning. Do you have any sense whether or not the people in this home health care that's in these co-ops go out and vote for their local elections or state elections or national elections? I have to believe that they do because I think they have been sensitized to the fact that what services they provide at the local level are are limited or are enhanced by things like Medicare, Medicaid, and public policy surrounding those things at both the state and the federal level. So I suspect that, that they're probably more aware of that than a lot of, of people employed in Especially the people who work for the for-profits probably have no no, no reason to, to, to connect we've their gotta, future with that. We've got to take our first break, Liz. We'll be right back. Everybody out there, please don't touch that down. Your news talk station. Information is power. That's why WOL makes a great, great partner in this program. Because we're giving you information about the cooperative business model so that you may look for them to do business with or you may decide you want to start your own, whatever area that might be. So we're here talking about women in this cooperative movement over time and the valiant women who get the vote out They not only work in a cooperative model, but they also get the vote out. So, Liz, we were been talking about the Home Care Products Group, and I had no idea we were going to go there, but it's a fascinating piece, and I would imagine they are sensitized to public policy and what it means for Medicare, and knowing that if they get out and vote, then they can elect officials that will help provide what people need, what these baby boomers and other people in these rural areas might need. You know, I would like the one thing, Vern, okay. I was thinking on the break that, you know, Governance and, and democratic governance is so much a part of the co-op business model that I think all members of co-ops in all the sectors are more conscious of that public policy dimension of the world around them. Some people are attracted to co-ops because it makes economic sense. If it's you know it, it it's a business transaction or a business to affiliate with, but an awful lot of them come to co-ops with some passion for economic justice or access to healthy foods or or issues that are so much 
talked about in the in the public arena, but I think you get an activism that comes out of members of co-ops, um, whether the co-op itself takes that that, or if it's just what the demographic of the membership is. I think there is there's really a, a you know, real belief in being engaged. That's part of of the co-op culture, and I think it shows then in in um, you know, times like this when we have elections that people can participate in. So my experience is, is economic justice, social justice, racial justice, access to good food, access to good housing, access to whatever the need may be in that community. So that's why I love co-ops. Okay. Mm-hmm. It gets in your blood. You mentioned earlier because of all of that. And you had no idea, so you're only 15 years. I guess I've been in this longer than you. I got involved 27 years ago when I started managing housing co-ops and really fell in love with this model. And Liz, I just don't see the capitalistic model approaching this economic justice or racial justice or social justice. I don't see it because greed is in the way too often. And the people that have, those capitalists that have money, uh, don't necessarily have the compassion to help the people that are the laborers or that are don't have money. And so there's always this tension between the land baron and the peasant, if you will, going back years ago. But it's the laborers and the management and all of that. And in the co-op model, you do get because the laborers own the business. So you don't have that tension anymore and the profit goes to them. Okay, I'll stop trying to preach here. Okay. <laughs> I get excited about this model and I know you do too. So I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Bailey Group. Uh, what do you all do? You have a consulting firm that, that you're doing now. We're, it's primarily economic development related to the co-op model. And it it draws out of the work I I did both at NCBA, the National Cooperative Business Association, and at the Cooperative Development Foundation, where we really were looking cross-sector at all the co-op work. And so what I'm trying to do now is continue some of the the passions I had and and some of the um, opportunities to help others who are working on on various co-op uh, initiatives and also to further the co-op brand. I I serve on the board of Cooperatives for a Better World as well, which is focused on trying to get better understanding of the of the co-op model and have people understand what it is and what it isn't. And that's that feeds into it too. So I'm I'm uh, having a lot of a lot of um, satisfaction, I guess, in, in continuing to be able to do cooperative development, but in a, in a different way than I was in the first, first involvement. And I'm always available for, for hire or for, for pro bono work, so I put that out there. <laughs> okay. What kind of clients do you have? Uh, but, but before you do that, you've mentioned the different sectors of the co-op world. So I, I've broken it down into four, and I'd quickly give a definition here. So the four is, and it depends on who owns and controls the business. If it's owned and controlled by the employees, it's called a worker cooperative. And so any business could be a worker cooperative. If the business is owned and controlled by the consumer, those that uses the products or services, it's called a consumer cooperative. Housing co-ops, credit unions, 
There's a uh, health clinic in Madison, Wisconsin, that's owned by the patients, so it's a consumer cooperative. And uh, then you have the mark, uh, purchasing co-ops, and farmers use that a lot. Artists are beginning to use it. And there's a group of people to come and start a business that buys what they need. For farmers, it could be seed or fertilizer or gasoline or equipment so they can get a better price and normally a better quality product because they have people to understand it. And then those farmers on the other end will start what I call a marketing co-op. Some people call them producer co-ops. So that all of the milk farmers are not, so they'll gather together and they'll sell, start this business and sell their milk or whatever they make to this company. And this company then can add value to it, like Cabot Creamery or Organic Valley, Ocean Spray, and they can get their products to markets that the individual farmer could not and more often get a better price for it. So those are the four basic types when you mention sectors. And so I assume you work in all of those sectors? Uh, what I try to do is I work in the cross-sector co-op world, which is not necessarily diving into one individually, but trying to to get most of the initiatives I'm working on are trying to get better public awareness of the fact that co-ops are all around them and are in all of those places, and people don't realize it. You know, I think most people are probably a member of a co-op if they're you know they're a member of a credit union or they they shop at at an Ace Hardware store and don't appreciate the fact that that's part of a, it's there probably because it's a member of a purchasing cooperative that makes a difference in their bottom line. So my work is is really not in going out and creating co-ops uh, right in on the ground, but it's more related to trying to to help that public policy world and the the broader public world to just better understand that co-ops are a business model that are part of the economy, a big part of the economy, and that they are really producing a huge amount of, of um, results for the, the economy and for their members who are then getting getting the benefit of a better price, a better access to markets that they might not otherwise have. And those are all things that are, are often not, not appreciated at all. But, uh, you know, you're, you have a very good, good uh, description of the different co-op sectors. It's just a lot of people don't realize that they're out there and that they're connected to them. There are a lot of people who think of co-ops only as a movement, that it is, it's about, you know, the, the, the bigger issues of the economic justice and of access to, to housing and food and all of that, which we all know are part of it. But in addition to that movement part, there is the actual business model and these, the sustainable, as we talked earlier, sustainable businesses that just like any other business that needs to grow, co-ops require nurturing, they require good management, they require all of those other things, including the commitment to the issues that, that we all want to advance. But it's ultimately, it's about what members want and need for themselves, and they then have have actual control over that. And getting back to your women's history thing, all of those co-ops are, are full of women who are either in leadership positions of the business itself or as members are leaders in the fact that they are, are voting one member, one vote in those co-ops 
or they're head of the you know the trade associations and and other organizations that lead the co-op movement. So um, there are we've we've called them a, a lot of times women. You know we refer to the soccer moms or the suburban women as voting blocks, and and you know I think that a lot of them are also co-op members, whether they realize it or not, and are providing that same kind of of presence and interest in issues through their co-ops memberships as well. Okay. So I got from Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhard, and when she wrote the book Collective Carriage, she said when she started collecting information about it, she was told that co-ops were not for black folk, it was for hippies. And that was the sort of image of what co-ops were. And after 15 years of studying it, she got that there was this rich history of almost every major black activist had with it this co-op model. And so it's for all people, particularly like one member, one vote was the second principle. The first principle of the co-op, they're open for everybody. It doesn't make any difference who they are, what nationality, what gender, whatever. That's the first principle. Second is this one member, one vote. And the third one, I think, if I don't get them mixed up, is economic participation. You can put some money in, become a member, mm-hmm. but you get this, you get money back if there's some kind of profit. Uh, yep. And you get yep. to decide what happens with that profit. That's right. So we're going to take our second break, Liz. And when, I, when we come back, I want you to talk about, besides Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhart, who's the educator and has done a lot, but let's, what are some of the other women and what areas have they been in in this co-op world? Okay, we'll be right back. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We have Liz Bailey uh, on the phone with us. Uh, Liz, let's start talking about those women whose work led to creation of Cooperative Development Advocacy Group. Could you just give us a, some examples of those women and what groups that they worked with? Well, one of the the leads, um, there has been cooperative advocacy forever, but in terms of the um, the actual on-the-ground organizations that are are doing cooperative development across the country. A lot of them are are all members of a group called Cooperation Works, which is started with a small handful of cooperative development centers and a number of them led by women uh, around the country. And it's now grown to, to be 30 to 40 um, members, and I apologize to Cooperation Works if I if I've got their numbers down lower than they are. I'm a member too, but I'm not sure what the, the membership is. But it was women who Judy Zewatz was at, at the National Cooperative Business Association and was took the leadership back when NCBA had a rural task force years ago that that decided that one of the ways to get cooperative development happening beyond just the agricultural community that was was so prevalent at that time was through the U.S. Department of Agriculture to set up a rural cooperative development grant program, which then provided seed money that, that allowed some of these cooperative developers to do their work out around the country in rural places. And that program continues today, and it is... Um, Cooperation Works became the first uh, clustering of all of those members, but it's it allowed 
people like you know Melba Smith to be working down in rural Mississippi, people like Kim Coons to be working uh, doing cooperative development in Davis, California, and serving that area. Diane Gassaway doing incredible work up in the Pacific Northwest where they've they've done all sorts of cooperative development but has a a real focused program on home care as well as on uh, the uh, conversion of manufactured housing uh, communities to resident ownership. Uh, They've taken real leadership on that. Margaret Lund was was in uh, the Minnesota area. She's now branched out and is doing broader consulting. But women have been leaders in this grassroots cooperative development. It hasn't been so much advocacy except advocacy by example of showing what kind of cooperative development is happening in these rural places and, and under the technical assistance that can be provided by these centers. Noemi Gilspink is, is doing similar good work in, in the, the uh, New England area. There, there's just incredible amount of leadership, and I, I only mention a few of the women who are, are doing that work, but it's, it's really grassroots kind of work. Uh, Deb Troca is working out of Indiana and out of her program. She developed a conference for newly developing food co-ops called Up and Coming, Up and Running. And it's actually being held as we speak in Madison, Wisconsin, with over 300 people in attendance. So it's, you know, it's, it's growth of knowledge and leadership and helping advocacy by way of doing. So it's that's one form of it that at that very grassroots level. I went to the up and coming last year, and even though she's in Indiana, she has it up in like Madison or somewhere up it's cold. It's become national. Cold, cold. Yeah, yeah, let's go. But you mentioned Deborah Trocha, who's been on Margaret Lund, Kim Coons out in California, Melba Smith, Naomi. Mm-hmm. Uh, you yes. didn't mention Christine Barker, but she's been on, so six or I, so. I did not mention Christine, yeah. but you're absolutely right. What they're doing in Cincinnati is, is terrific. Yeah, and that whole union cooperative initiative, I've been mm-hmm. out there, I think, three of the four years that they've had theirs, and I, I just learned some, and I love to be around it. Now, who I haven't had on the program is, is Shirley Sherrard in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and working with the Federation of Southern Co-ops. And so yeah, I, want, I keep putting that out there because I want to get her on. She has a tremendous story I would like to get on there yeah. and get it documented uh, through here. So those are some great ladies. And I kind of believe with the ones that I know of that voting is a huge part of their world, a uh, huge part of what they, they would make sure that they vote, their family votes, and everybody they can, not saying who they should vote for or what party they should belong to or any of that. Just g- let your voice be heard. Let your voice mm-hmm. be counted, which is part of the cooperative world. And right. I guess you would agree with that from what you said earlier. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, what, one of the things I've always thought would be a good function for a co-op in the community since most of them with their education focus are um, looking for ways to provide education and whatever is is immediately relevant to their their uh, sector say if it's healthy foods in a food co-op or or in a agricultural purchasing cooperative it may be more more related to their industry but a lot of them will also have facilities where they could host town meetings and it's something i'd always thought would be really an interesting 
component where you would not necessarily, like you say, not tell people who to vote for, but be that host in the community for a gathering of candidates for whatever the office might be and have the co-op be, maybe there, it would be to have a forum about healthy foods or or they may set a topic that is relevant to their, their particular interests or broader, just to be that that place in the community where where discussion can happen and engagement with candidates and with the rest of the community could happen. I think that's a, a marvelous way that a co-op could could play a role in the community since not every place will have rooms where people could meet and could host something like that. But the whole co-op commitment to governance and democracy is just so compatible with helping to have a dialogue at a local level about issues that uh, then percolate up into the system. I like that a lot because I didn't get this until the day, what, 10 years ago, I figured out who I, what I want to be when I grow up or who I want to be. And that is to promote and develop co-ops. And so that fits right in with what the Bailey Group is doing. And I had not realized that we're so entwined in what we are doing and want to do. So, yeah, we can we can figure out more how we can work together to do that. We definitely do. That's, there's a lot of work to be done in that, that arena. Absolutely. I want to now go, you talked about the fifth principle of education, knowledge, and information. And so can you talk about some of the women that are in this space of being educators that make sure that folks know about this co-op world? Yeah, there are some real giants in the education field, and a number of them are already in the Cooperative Hall of Fame. So they have gotten recognition for for the real contributions they've made. People like Ann Hoyt, who ran the, the, the UW Center for Cooperatives for a number of years. And That's the University of Wisconsin. Okay. University of Wisconsin. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Um, as a UW grad, I, I shorten it. Sorry. <laughs> My alma mater, too. All right. Um, and Ann Reynolds, another another giant in the Wisconsin scene, again, uh, also with UW University Extension and doing real work there. And Jessica Gordon Emhart, who you mentioned already, is is also somebody who who just has just an incredible contribution uh, and continues to do it today. That's the the beauty of it is the, these people. It's not just a job; it's a career, and it's a it's a way of life so that they are, are continuing to to be engaged in cooperative development. And this year in the Hall of Fame, they will be uh, in, inducting another person who is still very much engaged in, in the active doing of, of cooperative development, and that's Carmen Huertas-Noble, who is with the CUNY uh, Law School up in New York City. She, along with Jessica Gordon Emhart and Melissa Hoover are probably some of the the giants in the worker cooperative development world. They have all been nurturing and growing it, and Carmen has been particularly involved in the legal clinic work that they've been doing out of New York City, where they're advising a number of worker co-ops uh, on getting organized and, and how to do it. And she's she's been deeply involved in you know, helping to refine bylaws and all of the 
the the building blocks that are part of it, that it's not just esoteric conversation, but the real tangible pieces of what you what you need to have in place to have, again, we get back to sustainable co-ops. And there's also another dimension on the education side, which we in the advocacy world don't interact with them as much probably as as we should, but ACE is an organization called the Association of Cooperative Educators, and that membership is made up of a lot of men and women, not just women, who are faculty in colleges and universities around the country, a lot of them in the agricultural curriculum, others might be in consumer economics, you know, the whole range of of degree work that, and even the, the technical work that's done around various things that intersect with the co-op world. There's a whole whole world of, of that that is is in place and an awful lot of people who are doing really good work who you know who know that they're doing it as part of the the um the work related to cooperatives. Um and then also in the in the private or in I guess we consider the private world Farmers Union uh, is one example, has uh, cooperative educators, and Kathy Sykes, who runs the uh, National Farmers Union program, just does tremendous work with education, with young people, that they, they have summer camps and other educational programming that they're doing to really educate not only farm community kids, but kids from rural spaces about not only co-ops, but the other work that uh, that is related to uh, to how they fit into the rural economy. So there's there's tremendous amount, and I will will wow. also say that <laughs> wow. there's Roberta McDonald, who we know and love, uh, has been a sponsor of an amazing amount of educational programming that Cabot Cooperative Creamery has been doing. That has nothing specifically to do with dairy, which you would expect she might do, but they have a Girl Scout patch program is what it started out as, that you can earn a patch in community by learning about a co-op. And it's got all sorts of educational tools that have now been adapted for use in North Carolina through Emily Nail, who runs the Cooperative Council for North Carolina, has a summer camp. You need to go to this one, Vernon, uh, where they take uh, kids on scholar, high school kids on scholarship attend to this, and they form a co-op in the in the time they are at camp, and run it, and then dissolve it, and make all the decisions about the co-op. Uh, and they use the Cabot work on that too. So they're they're doing education for those young audiences, which which are the future. So there's lots going on in the educational world. Okay. As you would expect. So what's the good news as you were going through these names, I got about seven names and all of them have been on the show except for Carmen. And she will be this coming May because we April, May time, we'll interview the Hall of Fame folks. Right. And they, just to shout out the May the 6th is when they will be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Michael Mercer was on last week. Uh, and that was uh, wonderful guy. Yes. And uh, Ben Burkett, who's part of the Federation of Southern Co-ops, and Everett Dobrinsky, uh, we expect him to be in an April-May time frame. But it was nice to look as you were going through these names. I wrote them down and just put a check mark by them. I put a check mark mm-hmm. by them, and most of them have been on the show. Kind of take our final break, and so when we come back, I want to talk about other cooperative leaders. 
those folks that have been advocates. And I really want to get to those that have been in the capital markets that who have helped the, these capital market stuff uh, okay. bring money to the arena. And we'll be right back. National Corporate Bank sponsors this program so that people can get that power to get the information, put that information to use, and then that's where they will get the power. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. And they've done a great job since the 80s, especially in low-income communities where you'll find a lot of marginalized people, particularly brown and black folk. So they've been a really great advocate for us. <laughs> and Liz, we want to go back to talk about those women that have been helping in this capital where I have, you know, we talk about the capitalistic model versus the cooperative model. And I have it that they both have to exist because the co-ops need capital. The capitalists don't necessarily need co-ops, but our world does, the community does. So who are some of the women that are in this capital world that help provide capital co-ops? Well, one of the pioneers, and I, and I think you've had her on your program, is Rebecca Dunn, yes. who's now yes. retired from the Cooperative Fund of New England. But she was one of the people who, in addition to building out a portfolio of lending, had very, very few defaults, uh, just an extraordinary record of, of good, solid lending. She's one who, especially at the time when places like the SBA and others were not recognizing co-ops for, for viable lending, Rebecca participated in, because I think of her track record, and she was early on in applying to make uh, CDFI, uh, which was she was one of the first, I think, in in the group that that was doing that. She got they she participated in several SBA pilot programs where they they kind of carefully put their toe in the water to lend to co-ops and and were pleasantly surprised whether they admitted it or not that that uh, those loans were not bad loans and that, that the Cooperative Fund of New England had a good model for lending that, you know, they they looked at collateral and the business and other things. And one of the, the continual sticking points that that um, the co-ops have with the SBA at this point, even, even with a marvelous Main Street Employment Act that was passed in 2018, there's still foot dragging at the SBA for for lending to co-ops without looking for personal guarantees. There's there's one thing that that they just they cannot get past. We fought this back in 2012 when we all were involved in in the summit that we did with the White House was we started the conversations then about about the uh, the need to to accept that the co-op model has a different structure and that you cannot have the oh the people with substantial interests are not just a handful of people as in a in a regular LLC or whatever but that in a co-op you could have 100 members and you can't have each one of them carry the burden of the personal guarantee and that just is a concept that we 
we wrestled with and made some progress with, but uh, the SBA is still reserving the right to to uh, require a personal guarantee of some sort, which, um, in spite of the the new law, is is something that's creating a barrier for access to uh, guaranteed lending. On the other hand, we have the experience the U.S. Department of Agriculture did a marvelous job of taking their business and industry loan program, which, uh, you know, you have to be rural and read the right zip code for that, but a program which had been a lending program for small businesses was modified through the regulations, you know, they all went through all of the appropriate checks of boxes uh, to extend that to allow for a small business owner to sell his business or her business to employees who would then become make it into a worker-owned business, keep the business in the rural community. And what was new and different was the loan could extend through that transition period, which had never been allowed before. If you got a loan as a small business owner, you you couldn't have something that would help you in that real difficult period where people are learning how to run the business, just, just not work there anymore. And that now is available for small businesses that want to do that kind of a conversion in rural places. But the pipeline for that is, I think, still not filled out so mm-hmm. that the lenders in the co-op world, like National Cooperative Bank and, and Shared Capital and CoBank and others, are you know ready to participate, but the pipeline is not an adequate one yet to give a lot of, of activity there where there are small business it's it's coming but here again it's it's in part people need to learn that it's out there um, it's a change that that was made several years ago and it's slow in getting getting the number of business conversions that are could be eligible into there but you know the women who are in addition to Rebecca Dunn Christina Jennings is is the leadership at shared capital and Fedorchek has just been a a real rock um, and a real real advocate at National Cooperative Bank for a number of years now. Sarah Tyree is with CoBank in Washington and involved in a lot of their their advocacy and their work for for that whole farm credit system. And then Allison Powers is at Capital Impact Partners is is their uh, presence with is part of the team that that's developing the cooperative development piece. So there there's a good team of of women and all the people that they work for and work with who are ready to receive and are trying to do as much as they can to um, develop a pipeline for one thing, but then to, to have good lending instruments that are available to co-ops that either are startup or expansion or, you know, some, some component of that. Right on. And I would like to spend more time talking about the difference between, between the capitalistic model and the co-op model, but we're, we don't have a lot of time. So let's go to those women that are sort of national leadership. Who, who are some of those women? And what, well, what one who, who uh, I have, that's a long list too. Okay. And <laughs> you won't have enough time, but I want to pick out a couple to, to really shout out. And one is Shirley Bloomfield, who is, running the National Telecommunications Cooperative Association, Rural Broadband Association. She's got a long name to it. But they are the ones who are, her organization is made up of of co-ops and and 
non-co-ops in the broadband world, and they have been fighting the, the fight to get broadband out there throughout the country, and they're making progress, but have just had incredible hurdles along the way. But Shirley has been at the helm at, at uh, NTCA uh, for a decade or more, and they are they're making incredible progress, and, and she provides us incredible leadership in that area. Someone who, who is no longer at NRECA but the Rural Electric, I'd like to do another shout-out to Joanne Emerson, who who was just a powerful leader for um, for too short of a time, but was really, really working to to have a new generation of rural electric engagement at the local level, which is something that, that she passionately believes, believed in as a former member of Congress, too, and was really uh, making that happen. Of course, you have Kathy McMahon, who's, who's head of the uh, National Federation of Community Development Credit Unions, <clears throat> Melissa Hoover, one of my favorite worker co-op people, uh, really, really a visionary person and and uh, leader of Democracy at Work Initiative, which is is um, is part of the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. Um, Roberta McDonald, you, you know, she is just kind of in the in the the creative space for for the whole co-op world, even though. Cabot Cooperative Creamery is her primary, it's her day job. Uh, it certainly isn't where her, her interests uh, end, and she's just doing just an incredible contribution. Let me say something about her real quickly. Uh, she called me sinister on the, on, on the air, uh, okay, because <laughs> I said um, that I believe that one percenters don't want folks to know about co-ops because it'll take their share, their profit away. And uh, I think they do things to make sure that folks don't know about this cooperative model. She said that's very sinister. And, and, I, and I got that it might, what I like about her is she, what, if you want to know what Roberta thinks, ask her. <laughs> that's that's okay. exactly right. Because she's straight and she's great. And I, I like talking to her on air or not on air. And I've had several opportunities to do that. And she's just wonderful. Yeah. Got it. Yep. Who, who else? <laughs> Um, another person who has really risen uh, as an interesting story to, to tell to is Gina Schaefer, yes. who started, and I think you've had her on your program Several as well. times. Yeah, and that, now she's on the board of Carpet One or CCA Global. She was on the national board for Ace Hardware and started as a co-op owner and then has gotten very involved in the bi-local movement and is just really passionate about co-op the way everybody gets when they've been involved with it. Another person who I think is just an incredible gem for the co-op world is Anya First, who is the uh, head of the Blooming Prairie Foundation in the food co-op world. And she's really been visionary in her work with uh, the Willie Street Co-op in Madison. And they have, they have, two traditional co-ops and they have now opened a third co-op in Lisa, Madison. And Lisa, which is, Liz, we, we are going to have to leave it. We're out of time. We'll, yeah. we'll end on food. That's a good place. You know, to food is great. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for being on and sharing your wealth of knowledge about this co-op model and the women in it. And I have it that Women have been the nurturers of this co-op model, sometimes not out in front, but behind this casino. And they're really out for getting the vote out and making sure that people are heard. Thank you very much, Liz. You're welcome. Everybody else out there, we'll see you next week. Live cooperatively. 
your news talk station, 